0: Let's let's just reach our hands out to him and ask him. Do, Do you believe he'll answer us if we ask him? So, Lord, we ask you now to speak to us in spite of me, in spite of my humanity, in spite of my preconceived ideas, that you would speak and that every heart would be able to receive of your Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Encounter us now with your Word. I pray that we would be like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that you would speak to us and our hearts would burn. Hearts would burn. Let us be a community with burning hearts filled with your word. And so we ask you to speak. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I love... Probing questions. That's why Derek Kirkman and I have become such good friends. Because he has a gift for asking awkward questions and probing questions, and I I love it. This is what I've found in my walk with the Lord. The the times that I have grown the most are in the wrestle. The times where I've grown the most are when he's asked me the probing questions, and I've had to get before the mirror and go, wow, you're right. That's true. And so I've been thinking about that a lot lately during this season, and I resonate. If you were here Wednesday night, you know that Derek gave a word. Derek's a prophetic brother, and um, he he released a word on Wednesday night, and, and the essence of it was this, and correct me if I'm wrong, Derek, was that this is a season now where the Lord is speaking in the whisper. You know how Elijah, when he ran from... Jezebel, and he hid in the cave, and he's hiding and pouting and feeling sorry for himself and doing a lot of navel-gazing, and God shows the winds comes, and it's such a strong wind that it starts to break up the rocks, and they start to fall down, it says, but God wasn't in the wind, and then the earthquake came and shook, and the rocks began to break from the earthquake, and it says, but God wasn't in the earthquake, and then a great fire, roaring fire comes, and it says, but God wasn't in the fire. And then the whisper, the still small voice of God speaking, God was in the voice. And that's where the dialogue began. There's seasons like that in our lives where we have to listen carefully and get close to hear the Lord. I do believe that this is a season to partner with that word for sure in our personal lives to get close to the Lord and to hear that whisper but also for me, as being on the leadership team here at the church, it's been a season like that for me as well. Where I just want to get before the Lord and say, Lord, what are you saying? What exactly are you saying? What do you want? And so one of the probing questions that I've heard, I don't know how long ago I heard it, but I heard somebody say it, and it's stuck with me, and it's risen in me again um, recently. And the question is, This was the the probing question. What if we spent our whole lives making Jesus apple pies? And when we get before him and stand before him, he goes, You know what? I really didn't like apple pie that much. I really like cherry. The probing question. I get the whole food thing. I heard a preacher say one time, Brother David, i want to ask you in front of all these people if you've ever done something like this. But um, he said that in his church, there was a lady who kept bringing food to them. This was like her gift of giving. She kept bringing food to them and giving them the food and they really didn't like her cooking. And so she would ask the next Sunday, how'd you like that food? And he would just have to try to weasel his way out of it, oh we really appreciate your thoughtfulness, you know that kind of thing you know that kind of, that kind of language and he finally it struck him and this is what he did he decided to name his garbage disposal spot and then whenever she gave them food and she asked the next Sunday how'd you like that food that I brought you he said it hit the spot <laughs> come on you would do that too it's awkward. Here's what I don't want. When I stand before Jesus, I'm inching closer. Not not there yet. When I stand before him, I don't want him to say to me that hit the spot. I want him to say to me well done good and faithful servant. You did what I wanted you to do. You prepared the kind of food that I love. I love to smell it. I love to taste it. I love to eat it. That's what I want to hear Jesus saying to me. I want to give Jesus what he wants. Are are, are you with me there? I know every heart in here resonates that. We want to give Jesus what he wants. The problem is, I, I think, sometimes we can be making, steadily making apple pies every day, and because we like the apple pie, we think, surely he's going to like it. But let's hear what he wants, and let's hear what he likes. So the title of my message today is this, and this is a message for our body, I, I do believe. Giving Jesus what he wants. Giving Jesus what he wants. I want to start in John chapter 17. And I'm going to read, we're going to look through four verses in John 17 to start out. This is an amazing prayer. If you want to turn there, we're going to focus and concentrate on verses 20 to 23. So John 17, as you probably know, let me just give you a little bit of backstory and background on this, because this is important to understand. This is in the room with his disciples. This is the Last Supper. And Jesus Begins this whole process in John 13 through 17. It's all on that night. Literally after John's chapter 17 when he prays this prayer, they leave the room and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's how close it is. He begins this whole night, at least in John's account, by taking the basin and the towel, right? The master, this is unheard of, We don't realize how awkward this must have been for the disciples, for the teacher and the master to take the bowl and to take the towel and to get down on his knees and to take their smelly, dirty feet and to start to wash them. You know it was awkward because Peter protested so much. Lord, no, 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 no. You're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, yes, I am going to wash your feet because if I don't do this, you have no part with me. And so he washes their feet. So awkward commentators will tell you that that's unheard of, that the master would get down and wash. That was the duty of slaves. Masters would never wash the feet of their disciples. Never happened. But Jesus, the Son of God, it says in John 13, knowing where he came from and where he was going, took the basin and the towel. This is what we need to be able to serve. We need to know who our Father is, where we've come from, and where we're going. Having that kind of security enables us to serve and do anything. It's a beautiful thing. So Jesus washes their feet. And then he teaches them in John chapter 14. He starts to reveal who he is to them again. He talks to them about the Holy Spirit in John 15, about abiding in him, maintain that connection. Chapter 16 again, back to the Holy Spirit, back to prayer. And then chapter 17. This is an amazing So the high priestly prayer of Jesus happened evidently from all that we know in that same context. They're in the upper room or they're in the room where they're meeting to have the last supper. And the last thing that Jesus does before they literally walk out and go to the Garden of Gethsemane is that he prays and they all hear it. He's praying for a reason. He wants them to hear his heart. Before he goes to the cross. This, guys, is what's important to me. If you were praying the last prayer before you were going to go to the cross, do you think that it would be full of content of what was actually filling your heart and what you wanted them to hear and to know about what you desired? Do do you think? And so that's what John 17 is. It's in three sections if you look at it structurally. So verse 1 through 6, he's praying for himself as far as him going to the cross. And he's saying, God, I just want to glorify you and I want to complete the work you've given me. And then, verses 7 down through 20 or 19, he's he's praying for his disciples that are there with him in the room, that God would keep them, that God would sanctify them, that God would finish the work he's begun in them. And then, starting in verse 20, let's start reading there. He's praying for us. 17, 20. I do not ask on behalf of these, meaning the 12, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, But for those also who believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be. What are you you praying, Jesus? What's on your heart? When you're contemplating going to the cross, what is the thing that you want me to prepare for you? That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Why? That they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, and loved them even as you have loved me. So profound. This language of mutual indwelling throughout the Bible blows my mind. It's amazing. Father, this is what I'm praying for them. I want, as I'm going and contemplating the cross, I want the message of what I'm going to accomplish here to go out to the whole world. How are we best going to do that? We're best going to do that by dealing with these who are gonna believe on me that they may be one, not just one in unity, not just like each other, but they may be one in this supernatural amazing way that makes the world go, what in the world is that? That is so crazy and so beyond natural. That oneness is a supernatural thing that's birthed only by the spirit of the living God inside of people and he likens it like we are swept up. This is the language Jesus used. Try to wrap your mind around it. You're gonna be swept up into the oneness. I'm in them, they're in me, I'm in you, you're in them. This kind of language that Jesus uses, it's incredible. They're going to, their oneness is gonna be represented by the oneness of the Trinity. Wrap your mind around it. This is what's going to have the effect of convincing the world that I am sent by you and for them to believe in me. I'm all for evangelistic efforts and outreach and all of that. But the thing that Jesus emphasized in this prayer and in other places in the epistles is that the hub out of which true and powerful witness to the world comes is a body that is swept up into the union and the unity of the Trinity and is swallowed up and filled with a love that is supernatural and spectacular. And out of that unity, God explodes on the world. Sorry. This language is amazing. And since I'm a teacher I'm going to read <clears throat> some language here. This is one of my favorite commentators DA Carson. You don't have to know that for the test. That's what I tell my students. L- listen to this. It's so real. He says glory commonly, so in verse 22, he says, I've given them my glory. Why have you given us your glory, Jesus? Why? This is the only place in the Bible where I know it, where it explains why he's given us his glory. This is the only place. Glory commonly refers to the manifestation of God's character and person in a revelatory context. So the manifestation, the weighty presence of God. How many love the weighty presence of God? How many love the weighty presence of God? You're a lover of his presence. There's a reason. There's supposed to be a reason behind it. This is the reason Jesus goes, Father, the glory that I've had with you before the foundation of the world in our interaction as the perfect union in the Trinity, you gave me glory, and I've given it to these who believe on me. Why? So that they'll be one. Jesus' prayer is that we might be brought to complete unity, sharing in the unity of purpose and the wealth of love that tie the Father and the Son together. The thought is breathtakingly extravagant. Try, Try to wrap your head around this. We're talking about the oneness of the Trinity being reproduced in us for each other. See, the world's not going to know that we're His disciples because we're loving people. The world's going to know that we're His disciples because we love one another. It has to do with the oneness in the community. You go, well, that's very self-centered. No, it's actually God's plan and purpose that He build a people that are so one in heart that it actually mirrors the oneness of the Father and the Son. That's what he's saying in this passage. The unity of the disciples as it approaches the perfection that is its goal serves not only to convince many in the world that Christ is indeed the supreme center of divine revelation, but also that Christians themselves have been caught up into the love of the Father for the Son. The very same love he reserves for his Son It's hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal. I agree. That's phenomenal. Here's the problem it's largely outside of our experience. We like some people. We like to hang with them. But what Jesus is after is giving us his glory. Not so much, and I, I love what we do, did here today. I love the prophetic spirit in the church. I love the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We want more of that. We want that multiplied a hundredfold. But there's a reason why Jesus gave us his glory. Do do you think that we should take it and use it for the purpose that he's designated it? Do you think that's fair? And the reason that he designated it in this prayer, and again, he's praying in front of his disciples so that they can hear him. He wants them to hear his heart before he goes to the cross. Because they're just about to get run over by a truck and they don't know it. Here comes Hurricane Maria towards Puerto Rico and they don't know it's coming. They're about to be decimated when he's crucified. The truck just runs them over and he's gone. You've got to get prepared. I want you to hear my heart and know what I'm all about and know what my purposes are and what kind of pie I love to eat so you can make it for me. So take the glory. I know you can't do this yourself, it's as if he's saying. I know that there's no way in your natural being, in your natural self-centered, cranky, irritable self, Come on. Anybody else? Hangry. Praise God. Yeah. My wife says that I I snore less when I'm eating on the healthier diet and that when I go out to eat, then I tend to snore more or whatever. I said, baby, it's because when I go out to eat and I eat more substantially, my stomach's not gnawing all night long at me. And so I sleep deeper than I snore. Never mind. That's another story. (laughs) I'm saying we need to use the glory that he gave us for the reason that he says to use it. I'm not saying it's not good for other things. It is. It's amazing. But if we miss this, are we making him a kind of pie that he doesn't like? You know, there's precedent in the book of Isaiah and other places in the prophets. The new moons and the festivals that God himself appointed, I hate them. You bring all this worship stuff, I hate it. I don't want it. Why? Because the heart wasn't in the right place, right? Am I saying we should know No. We, we, we want worship. We want the Lord to have his way. But here's the thing. Let's make sure... With all of our doing and with all of our getting, with all of our power and energy, that we're giving Jesus what He really wants. And what He wants is, I'm dying to break down the partition wall between Jews and Gentiles, between all races, and now they're all going to be one in me. The, The purpose of God in eternity is that everything will be gathered together in Him. That's us. That's why we get His glory. Not so we can get exciting meetings. I love exciting meetings. Trust me, I'm a student of revival history. I love it. I teach it in the school. But we got to get the purpose that Jesus wants us to use it for. Here's another commentator real quick. These words express and imply consequences in the contemplation of which one can scarcely breathe. I agree. It's just so staggering. If you sit there and ponder that, I've done this a lot of times, ponder the language of you and me, I and you, us together, Father and me, Father and you, us together, you and that that kind of language of mutual indwelling, it blows my mind. But what he's trying to get at is how do you express in human words the closeness of spirits being knitted together in such a way that there's no discernible separation. That's what he's going after in us as a community. I get we have our differences, but there's spiritual connection that overrides all of our natural differences. That shows the world, oh my gosh, there is a God. That's miraculous. That's what Jesus wants. He's after it. I and them, verse 23, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So probing question. How many are good with me asking a few probing questions today? Are you okay with that? I, lo- I like probing questions. I like to ask them. You can ask my students at Maranatha. What I, what I love to do is just to start a rustle. I like to just start a wrestling class, and then they, they're, they're round and round and go back. Because this is where you learn it. The wrestle with God, Jacob, is where you get changed. You get transformed. And so often, if we don't have the wrestle, spit in your head, spit back out of your head, there's no power on that. But when you do the wrestle and you walk with the limp the rest of your life, and you're marked by something that God does, there's something that's transformative about that that you can share with somebody else. It's powerful. So here's my probing question. First one. Do I care about this issue as much as Jesus does? Do I care about the issue of this oneness between myself and my brothers and sisters as much as Jesus does? Here's the second part of that. Is it even on my top ten? How many don't want me to say any more probing questions? Okay, praise God. 1 Peter chapter 4. I've just got a few verses I want to go through here in this exhortation. We're we're talking about giving Jesus what he wants. And I'm submitting to you what Jesus wants in his body. I'm not saying it's the only thing he wants, but this is a primary thing that he wants. This is what he put out right before he literally walked out and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He wants his people. To be so joined to each other in oneness of heart and purpose and life that it astounds the world and shocks them into believing in the Son of God. That's awesome. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober and Spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So first thing that strikes us, the end of all things is near. Question, why does he connect the end of all things? He says, yeah, be spiritually sensitive, be filled with prayer. The end of all things is near. I think we get that connection. But then why does he say in verse 8, above all? Above all, this is how Kenneth Weiss translates it. Before all things in order of importance. Before all things in order of importance is what? Be fervent. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. What is the connection between the end times and loving one another? I think there's at least two good reasons and you might be able to come up with more. But to me, Here's, here's two solid reasons why that's important. Everything's wrapping up. Number one, in order for us as a people of God to bear witness to the gospel rightly and to have the Holy Spirit engage fully in our community, we have to do this. That's, it's, it's not optional. Secondly is this. Hear me. Love is going to be on your final exam. Love is going to be on your final exam. All of us, when we stand before the Lord, you remember the stories that he's told in Matthew 25 and other places. Sheep and the goats, right? Which ones are the sheep and which are the goats? When I was hungry and thirsty, you gave me food and drink. When I was in prison, you came and visited me to the degree that you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to... You did it. You actually did it to me. That awkward person that you reached out to and put your arm around and loved and paid their electric bill, that was me. And we're going to know that when we stand before him. Love is going to be on all of our final exam. And how happy and joyful we're going to be. Listen, every sacrifice will fade into absolute joy. This is reality, I can tell you, with raising a large family of children. There's days of sacrifice, and I've told you guys before. I mean, there's been seasons with us raising our kids where it was so difficult. I would say over a three-year period, probably, it seemed like to me at least half the days that I came home from work, my wife was crying. It was so hard. Do you think we cry about that and regret that now? No, no. Because both of them are ministers of the gospel, giving their life on the foreign field to preach the gospel. They're lovers of Jesus that sell out everything and give it all to him. That's not because we're awesome. It's because God is so great that he can use knuckleheads to do his will. That's absolutely the truth. After our first two, we thought, oh, praise God, we're getting ready to write a book. And when our third one came, we threw all our notes and burned them in the fire. We don't know one thing. No, we don't know anything, nothing, zero, nada. God does things in spite of us because he's huge, and he's big, and he's magnificent. And guess who gets the glory for that? If anybody tries to tell me, oh, man, you raised awesome kids, I always go, Actually, we did our best, but it was flawed. But God himself came in. He reached down. He made himself known to them. He grasped their hearts. He captured them. And he had destiny for them and brought them into it. And we mostly stood along for the ride. I'm not saying we didn't do anything or didn't do our part. We tried. But I can tell you the part that we did... Though some people may think, oh, that's awesome. Actually, not really. The Lord is the one who's awesome because it's all supernatural. And if we wanted to get the gospel out, we can talk about methodology. And I'm not saying there's no validity in that. We can talk about venues and all of that stuff. But the the real deal is if we get ourselves in a position to where his glory can really flow out of us as a a community and as a body, there's going to be more accomplished in one second than we could accomplish in a thousand years by our methods, by our whatever we're going to do. That's true. Spiritual power is what's needed for people to believe. Their eyes have to be open. The Lord has to reveal himself to them. So here's my thing. Let's make Jesus what he wants. Let's get into the place where we prioritize being a community that's one in spirit to where there's no air in between. It's a miracle. I know. So a lot of you guys, it's like tilt in your brain. Like, no, no, I really don't want to be close to these people. (laughs) I get it. That's where the miracle comes in. That's where the miracle comes in. God changes our hearts. He changes our eyes to see people as he sees them. To see the deposit of Jesus in them. If we could only see each other through the lens of Jesus that sees the deposit that he placed in that person next to you. And to call that out and to rejoice in that. Yeah, there's junk around it. How many got junk in your life still? Okay, praise God. There's five of us. Hallelujah. The rest of you will have an altar call afterwards. Above all, before all things in order of importance. So in order to be what we're supposed to be in this last day, we have to be this people. So the word fervent, let me just look at that for a minute. The word fervent in verse 8. Keep fervent in your love for one another. This this word is only used twice in the New Testament. Here's the teacher coming out. Are you okay? This this Greek word is only used twice in the New Testament. It's interesting they're both connected with Peter. This, This passage here. And then there's in Acts chapter 12. So in Acts chapter 12, Herod martyred James, killed him, and then Peter's taken and put into prison because Herod saw that it pleased the Jews that he did that, so he goes, let's just get Peter too, and the plan obviously was to martyr him as well. So it says the saints were together praying fervently for Peter and for his release. The word has the idea of stretching out and reaching. It's, a lot of translations translate it intensely. There's an intensity about So the same way that we pray, the same way that we seek God fervently, that's how we love. Probing question. How many people in this body would say that you love them intensely? That was awkward. Is that real? Is that faithful to what this text says? That God tells us we need to love each other fervently and intensely. Ephesians chapter 4, winding our way. Ephesians 4, giving Jesus what he wants. Ephesians 4, I want to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to skip down to verse 11. 1 through 3, so amazing. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, that means I beg you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How many want to walk worthy of the Lord and the calling that he's given you? Okay, if you do, raise your hand. All right, that's, that's probably most of us. Some people won't raise their hand if you gave them a $100 bill, I get that. We want to walk worthy. What does that look like? Question. Question. What does it look like for us to walk worthy of our calling? Verse 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Is this not remarkable that the measure of whether or not we're walking worthy of our calling is how we treat each other? It's not whether we go to prayer meetings, although I love that. It's not whether we prophesy, although I love that. It's not whether we've seen miracles, although I love that. The measure of whether we're walking worthy of our calling is how we treat each other. Are we giving Jesus the pie that he wants? probing question. By this definition, am I walking worthy of Jesus? By this definition, am I walking worthy of Jesus? Skip down to verse 11. 11 through 16. Familiar passage here. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until, notice these next two words, until we all attain. Can I just say something that I think is very real in charismatic circles? Is that we view our destiny in God and our life in God much more individualistically than the Bible does. I want to tell you that you cannot attain your individual destiny in God apart from community. You can't. We have to attain together. We're going somewhere as a body. I'm not saying we don't have a personal life with God. We do. But we cannot attain our destiny in God Apart from community. How do I know that? Because of the language here. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man. So we're going to be as a group, as a community, a mature man. I get that this is the whole body of Christ. But know that he is writing to the church at Ephesus here. Okay? to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. This is a we thing. This is we all. Verse 16, from whom, what's the next three words? The whole body, being fitted together from what every joint supplies. According to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You know in that upper in that room that night on the Last Supper, in John's account, three times Jesus commands them to love each other. And he also, in addition to that, he washes their feet and said, if I'm your Lord and Master and I do this for you, then you're going to do it for each other. He says, I give you a new commandment, singular. As if to say, this commandment rules them all. This is the heart and soul of it all. I give you a new commandment. Love one another. How? As I've loved you. Oh, wow. Now we're into the supernatural realm. A new commandment I give you. Why is it new? Just clear the slate and let's reset. This is what I want you to go for. In just a few hours, we're going to get up out of here. And we're going to walk out of this room and I'm going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to die and I'm going to be in the tomb for three days. And you guys are going to feel like you just got ran over by a truck. Even though I've told you over and over again, you still, you don't get it. You don't have ears to hear. What you got to get, what you've got to get solid is my heart in this. To be my representatives That I want you to beat in order for the world to get real and clear and powerful witness. You have to love each other as I have loved you. That's not according to our own standard. That's according to the standard that he loved. How did Jesus love the disciples? Would you say that it was measured in sacrifice? This is, this is the startling and the shocking and the troubling thing about the New Testament. When it talks about love, we think about emotional love and feeling something. The Bible, when it talks about love, says, we know love by this. How do we know love? That he laid down his life for us. And we ought also to what? To lay down our lives for each other. That's what love is. This is what was on Jesus' heart as he was going to the cross can I, can I just say I for one i am asking you to go there with me I'm ready to lay down whatever that takes to do that it's sacrificial love is sacrificial it's not Beatles kind of love love, 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 all you need is love it's not that <laughs> all you need is love no, it's not that Jesus said All you need is love. Lay down your life for each other as I've laid down my life for you. He wants it. It's the flavor that he loves. I'm a tour man. Let me read to you Philippians chapter 1 just as a supplement to this. It's not just here that it talks about walking worthy as being a relationship With one another. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, I'll just read it to you. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. How do we do that, Paul? So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. How do we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? We strive together with one mind and one spirit. There's a unity of heart there that Jesus is after. He loves it. Numbers chapter 32, and i close with this passage. Numbers 32, if you turn there. This is an Old Testament example that I think speaks directly to where we're going today. Paul said that the things that happened in Israel were written for our instruction and our example, right? Upon whom the ends of the age have come. Numbers 32 I'll give you a little backstory, and we'll, we'll look at this. I'm going to read a few verses here. I'm going to pick it up at verse 4 in just a second. Let me give you the backstory. The children of Israel are making their way to the promised land of Canaan. And they've defeated some foes already getting in there. And they're kind of on the edge of the, of the property. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. But the biggest part, the most part of the promised land of Canaan is on the west side of the Jordan. They're not there, but they just conquered the Midianites in chapter 31. They plundered all of their stuff. They got tons of animals, cattle and sheep, all of that. And they come into this place, and they're on the east side of the Jordan, so they haven't really gotten into the heart of where the, the promised land is. They're just kind of on the fringes. That's still part of the, what God gave them, but it's on the outskirts. It's on the fringe. And so there's two tribes that see, man, we've got tons of cattle. This place here that we're at has a lot of nice grass. This would be a great place to go ahead and settle down. And just to have our cattle have plenty of grass to graze on, it looks like it's a pretty decent place. We've already conquered the kings that were here, the Amorites. And so we can just, we can just build here. And so they go to Moses. This is Gad and Reuben. They go to Moses and they make this proposal. Verse 4. The land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. They said, If we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourself sit here? Now, why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? So it sounds a lot to Moses like they're saying, hey, we've got ours. Good luck with yours. And Moses is like, oh, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. We are a tribe and a group of people that is made up of tribes, but we all fight for each other. And we all help each other to get our inheritance. And we can't get our inheritance without everybody putting in their supply. And then Moses starts to have a bad flashback about the 12 spies thing in Kadesh Barnea. Where the 10 spies came back with a bad report and the two, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a good report. He's starting to have a flashback here in verse 8. This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol, they saw the land. They discouraged the sons of Israel, so they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. For they did not follow me fully except Caleb and Joshua, for they followed the Lord fully. Verse 13, So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And he made them wander in the wilderness forty years until the entire generation of those who had done evil on the side of the Lord was destroyed. Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. Moses is having a little conniption here. You got, you fools! Don't you realize what you're doing? You're repeating what happened. We were in the wilderness forty years. I'm not going to get to go in the promised land because you guys made me so mad that I disobeyed the Lord. And now here you, what What are you even talking about or thinking? You're going to stay here and go, this is going to be our land, and you're not going to go in there and fight for your brothers and sisters to get their inheritance? No, I don't think so. used hey, some pretty strong words there. Brood of sinful men. Does that sound like John the Baptist at all? You brood of vipers? <laughs> For verse 15, for if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. If you don't help them get their inheritance, you're actually causing their destruction. It's really strong language. So Gad and Reuben had a little powwow and they go, um, let's have a revised proposal. Verse 16, then they came near to him and said, We'll build here the sheepfolds for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them to their place while our little ones live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. So they wanted to protect their families. They go, let us just build enough fortifications to protect our families from marauders while we're gone. But we're going to go and fight For the children of Israel, verse 18, We will not return to our homes until, look look at this, until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance. Every one. For we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan toward the east. So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him and the land is subdued before the Lord. Then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward uh, the, Lord, to the Lord in Israel and this land shall be yours for possession before the Lord. But. If you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Yes, that's where that verse is found in its context. Your sin will find you out. This is a powerful illustration to me because Moses says, look, you're not going to discourage. You're not going to sit here and say, hey, we've got ours. Hope you have a nice life and hope you can get it. All right. I've got my relationship with God, I've got my healing, I've got my blessing, I've raised my family. Hope it goes well with you, guys. I mean, have a, have a good life. I, I'm trusting that the Lord's going to help you." He's like, "No, that didn't work. We're called as a people and as a community to, to, this to help each other to get our inheritance. We have to help each other get our inheritance. You see the language Moses used? This makes the Lord angry. If you go, "I've got mine. Have a nice life. Hope you can get yours. He's not okay with that. We have to help our brothers and sisters. This is what the body of Christ does. So I want to just tell you, here we're going to have communion here in just a minute, which is a beautiful way to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus and in community. I want to I want to tell you a few ways that we're fighting for our inheritance here at Heart of the Father. And I want to enlist your help. I want to enlist your help. I want to ask you to be part of the community that takes up arms and fights until every single one has gained their inheritance. Firstly, we're contending here for freedom and fullness of the Holy Spirit's moving in our body. We're contending here for that. I love what happened down here today. There is more. Promise you, there's more. The Lord has more. You go, well, what does that have to do with me? I'm just going to let the prophetic people like Raul, like Derek get up there and do their thing. No. Every Joint supplies, remember that in in Ephesians chapter 4? So here's what I'm asking. I'm asking for us to come together. If you want to be a prophetic community, lift up your hand right now. If you want the Spirit of God to have freedom and to flow and to do everything He wants to do, okay, then you're part of the solution. How am I part of the solution, brother? You may not have a prophetic gifting. I love the prophetic. You know what the prophetic gifting does in a body? It's like a catalyst that helps the fire to start, and then a lot of other people get into the flow. That's what happens. So they're kind of, they're kind of the, the breakers and the fire starters. That's awesome. That's beautiful. We all can have a prophetic spirit. Do you know that? But here's the deal. Can I just ask you this? Can I ask another probing, awkward question? Is that okay? Do you approve of that, Derek? Can I ask an awkward question? Here's the question. Do you come expecting and ready and spiritually edified when you come into this church or do you come again this is not a beat down trust me it's not a beat down this this is this is stuff that i do all the time in the mirror okay this is just a probing question i'm just asking do we come ready for the lord to actually use us to be part of that flow or do we want somebody else to get up there and do it for us can, can i ask you a question here And just be honest, you don't have to raise your hand. You won't anyways. It's all right. I get that. (laughs) How, How many of us have ever even a single time before coming to a gathering, an assembly, prayed and asked the Lord, Father, use me today. Use me to be a catalyst to bring forth what you want in your spirit. Use me today. How many of us in here, I'm just asking the question, have ever even prayed? That one time, much less every time, and coming, not just rolling out of bed. I get these pictures in my head of, of college when I went to Southeastern. We had a 750 class, and that was so hilarious. People will come to that class in their pajamas. I mean, they, they roll out of bed, but total major bedhead, you know, one side is flat like that. Just, they're just not ready. That happens in church where we come, and we're just as carnal and fleshly as we can be, as we're irritable, and we're not spiritually tied into the head so how are we thinking that we're actually going to be part of the solution and the prophetic spirit? Turn to somebody next to you and say, "He really loves you." <laughs> can, can I ask us to be part of that? Do you know? In a couple weeks, Wednesday night, March eleventh, after Bob Gladstone's coming on the fourth, on the eleventh, we're going to have a First Corinthians fourteen twenty six meeting here. Anybody know what that is? First, First Corinthians 14, 26? Am I preaching now? Or is this? It says this. How, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you gather together and assemble together, everyone has something to give. Everyone has. Everyone has something. A psalm, a teaching. A tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. You know how big the church in Corinth was, most scholars say? 50 to 75 people. Paul said they had all the spiritual gifts there. How's that? When they came to church, they literally took numbers. If they would have had those. Hey, dude, I've got something here. Okay, get in line. There's 50 of us. This is going to be a while. Everybody comes and they're ready. They're taking a number. I've got something to share. I've got something on my heart. I've got some life in me. I've got a connection to the living God. This is how we have to break the back of the spectator spirit that's in the church. We want to come and see the superstar perform. I love them. I think they're awesome. I love guys that preach and make my hair singe back. I like that. I like to go home with some burn marks on me. And I thank them for it. Thank you for cutting me like that. I, it's, just, it's awesome. I I want to grow. But but here's the deal. As a body, we have to be the people that's ready. Every joint supplies. Okay? So so we have and we're 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 forming, getting together, and trying to draw in people in that prophetic community. Are you you following where I'm I'm going with this? We're fighting for our inheritance here. You go, I know I can get that on YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube, but you can't participate. Jesus doesn't like the watching kind of pie. He wants participation. Every joint supplying. That's what kind of pie I'm talking about. And so we want to have that community. We've got prophetic people like Raul, like Derek, like others that are getting together. And we're drawing other people into that. We want for that. Do we want there to be a brigade, a posse of those that are fire starters and get up there? And all of us can get in that. I want to get more than that. I want to raise my game. Who wants to raise their game? All right. Let's all raise our game. So if we can come ready, that'll be huge. How is it, And when you come together, everybody already has something. You're already ready to take your number when you come through the door. Maybe we ought to start giving out numbers. That's one of the things we're fighting for, we're contending for in this body. We haven't seen the fullness of this yet. We've seen some, and, and I'm not... I'm not dissing anything that we've seen here. All I'm saying is, I know that the Lord is going to bring more and he has more in his heart. Here's how he's going to get it, though. It's not by sending in the one or the two, it's by joining the supply of every joint. Freedom and fullness of the Holy Spirit's moving. We're contending for that. Second thing we're going to contend for, for sure, Jesus wants this is freedom from life hindering chronic sickness. We prayed for the witness today. This church has been attacked by sickness over the last year or more. And uh, we're over it. I have a dear brother. I asked him if I could just mention his name today, and he said I could, so don't, don't stare me down with swords or anything like that. I, I have talked to him. I wouldn't do this without But But Chris Pierce, he's a great brother. He's got an amazing testimony, came out of a life as a drug dealer, all kind, every kind of debauchery you can imagine, and God encountered him and totally turned his life upside down. He's amazing. Great brother. And he has struggled with chronic illnesses for years, in and out of the hospital, having anxiety attacks, all of this kind of stuff. And he wants, he wants help. He, he, here's the thing. Healing in the New Testament, according to the the inheritance that God gave us in James chapter 5, is pray for one another. Gather together. I feel like so often in charismatic circles, we've missed it because we've been relying upon those who had gifts of healings only. But this is the inheritance. This is a children's bread. This is the inheritance of us as a community to come together, like it says in James 5. Let's all gather together and pray, and the prayer of faith is going to raise him up and heal the sick. Not necessarily gifts of the spirit, but the prayer of faith, the Lord will raise him up. It's very emphatic, but that's in the context of community. And confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So why is that superior to the prayer line? A, because in the prayer line, there's only a small percentage that get healed. In the community model, we can take our time. We can explore and find out maybe what's behind it. This is what we're going to, I'm calling the prophetic people to come there too. When we pray over the sick, I'm calling the intercessors to come. You go, well, I'm not sick. I'm okay. My kids are okay. Not what I'm talking about. You're part of the community. Put in your supply and come. Let's rally around those who haven't got their inheritance yet. Are you with me in this? Let's rally around each other. Let's be a place where Jesus goes, oh man, that smells. I love the smell of that place at Heart of the Father. I love the kind of pies that they cook around there. That is good stuff. Come on. They're loving each other in a supernatural way where they're putting aside their own preferences. Well, I'm tired. I I get it. I get tired. I live sleep-deprived for decades. That's, not, that's no joke. That's part of the reason that the cardiologist told me that's probably why you had heart issues, because you have to get enough sleep or your heart won't be able to heal right. So word to the rise. Never mind. I, I get it. Love means sacrifice. If you're an intercessor, if you can pray and call out to God, I'm asking you to come, let's, let's, let's gather around these people, let's break the back of sickness and chronic illness that's on their lives, at least we need to stand before the Lord and do the best that we can, and go, Jesus, we poured out our heart and our soul, we fasted, we got the prophetic people there to see if there's anything that can be revealed, sometimes it only takes one word of knowledge to show, hey, th- this thing here, and it's like, boom, something opens up, and that's, that's the key. So, yeah, we want want everybody to put their supply in and put their gift in. What if we had a community like that? Where we would all fight for each other's inheritance. Instead of going, oh, I've got mine. Hope you get yours. I I just want to put out there that God's not okay with that. He wants something more. Jesus gave us his glory for a reason. It's so that we'd be one. So we want to do that. That's the second thing. We want freedom from life, chronic sickness. That's our inheritance. The third thing, we want freedom from the enemy's bondages. I want to tell you something, and I want to ask for your cooperation. There's a plague that's swept through the body of Christ, and it's decimating the body. And we hardly even talk about it. And it's called pornography. Pornography. It's decimating the body. Can I just read you these statistics? 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively seek out porn. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once a month. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to porn. 94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. This is a scourge that the enemy has sent to neutralize and to neuter the people of God. I can tell you something. You know this, if you've been in this. When your heart condemns you and you're guilty, when you come to church, all you're trying to do is to fight through that and get out of that you're not really able to help somebody else fight and to get their inheritance it's bondage it's neutralized and neutered the men of our generation and our church it's neutered them 68% or some some crazy number like that of, of all marriages that end in divorce porn is one of the key issues there this is the devil this is the devil and our question is, are we, gonna, are we okay with that? Are we okay with saying, okay, devil, come in. Here's your plague. Come through with your coronavirus of the spirit, and we're going to be okay with that. We're just going to keep acting like nothing's happening, and I, and I can't do it. I, I would just tell you personally, and we've talked as elders, um, we, we are going to attack this head on. Not attack people. This is not about throwing anybody under the bus. This is not about a beatdown on anybody. This is not about guilt manipulation at all. This is about a group of people fighting together to break bondages off of you and off of your destiny. We're going to fight with you. We're not going to let the devil ravage the body of Christ. 70% of all pastors in survey say that porn is the number one issue that is hindering their church. Number one, 70%. Well, what in the world are we doing? I have felt the fear of the Lord over this in the last several months. Like, I feel like the Lord's saying to me, if you don't deal with this, I'm going to hold you accountable. If you don't come after this, I'm going to hold you accountable for this. I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. So here's what we're going to do. Starting on March 25th, it's it's a Wednesday, for 10 weeks. We're going to go through the Conqueror series, which is a video series, and then there's groups that you get into afterwards. We're going to go after this, and we're going to slay the giant. We're going to help those that are in bondage get free. This is not about throwing anybody under the bus. Let me, let me, let me say something else. You go, oh, man, I, listen, it's not graphic. There's not pictures, so I get how some people are real queasy and sensitive to this. But listen to me. A lot of people that you know are bound in porn. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. A lot of people that you know are bound and born. A lot of them. Or they're in and out, in and out, in and out. How are you going to have a consistent spiritual life when your heart is constantly compromised? You can't do it. We have to fight for each other to get our inheritance. So we're going to go through that. I'm asking everybody to come. Listen, if, if it doesn't affect you, it may affect your grandchild. It may affect your child. It may affect your spouse. It may affect, It's going to affect somebody that you know. And if you're equipped to be able to help them to break out of that, Hallelujah. We want to have the antidote for the plague that the enemy is sending into the body of Christ. We have to do something with this. This is not okay. And so we're going to fight until every person achieves their destiny and their inheritance. We're going to fight. We're going to fight. We're going to be a place by the grace of God and by the help of the Holy Spirit that actually loves each other in a way where Jesus smells it and goes, I love that smell. I love that kind of pie. That's what he's after. That's what's on his heart. I'm not saying these are the only things, but I know that we're going after these things. Can I ask, can I ask every person in here, if you feel like you're part of this body, Can I plead with you? Will you help us fight? Will you help us fight? Will you help us fight for greater movement of the Holy Spirit? Will you help us fight for greater freedom from those that are bound? Will you help us fight? We can do this as a community. He's given us His glory. We just need to use it for the right thing. We're going to receive communion now as a body that's going to be our altar call we're going to take communion as a body and we're going to move forward with what the Lord has